Now and Zen Japan now has its own website. The URL is nowandzen.jp. Now and Zen, all one word, N-O-W-A-N-D-Z-E-N dot J-P. There you can easily browse all of the episodes, subscribe to the podcast, read all the show notes, you can even leave a voice message. Nowandzen.jp. Now, back to the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome to the podcast. This episode is sponsored by Zoe Digital Japan. Get more visitors to your website and convert them into paying customers. Zoe Digital helps foreign companies expand in Japan with digital marketing services. Look for the elephant logo at zodigital.jp. Now and Zen is also sponsored by the Gugu Mattress Company. Super comfortable and very affordable. Nothing better than a great night's sleep with a Gugu Mattress. Discount codes available later in the podcast. Hello, everybody. This episode, I sit down with a Japan icon. It was a real honor to welcome and speak with best-selling and critically acclaimed author Robert Whiting. I've been a big fan of his writing since the early 1980s when I read his first book, Chrysanthemum and the Bat, back in high school. We discuss his latest book, Tokyo Junkie, 60 years of bright lights, back alleys, and baseball. Bob tells incredible stories of his early days in Tokyo, running around with Japanese gangsters, or as he refers to it as, his degenerate years. He explains how writing this memoir was a painful process, the big break which changed his life, and what goes through your head when your life gets threatened by the Yakuza. This is really amazing storytelling at its best. Direct from Tokyo, this is Now in Zen with the one and only Robert Whiting. I did get a letter from George W. Bush. He sent me a handwritten letter. Really? What did he say? He said, Dear Bob, I read Tokyo Junkie and I'd just like to say thanks for the shout out. I really enjoyed the book, you know. But, uh, you know, he said, keep up the good work. It's handwritten. Nice. Made a couple of mistakes. He crossed them out. It's quite amazing. I'm stationary, George W. Bush. That I hope you framed. I've got it. I, I don't know what to do with it. I copied it and sent it, put it on my Facebook page. But I, I don't know. But it was just a nice gesture. And he actually used the word shout out? Yeah. Thanks for the <laughs> shout out. <laughs> okay. Wow. He's getting hip. Hip in his old, old age. Yeah. What sort of thoughts run through your mind when your life has been threatened by the Yakuza? Well, you know, all the air goes out of you, I must say. I mean, when I thought about that, you know, it scared me. You know, I thought, Jesus, what have I done? You know, and uh, so for a while, I started taking a different route home every night. But... Murata, the Sumiyoshi captain, the guy said, just be careful on the way home, don't stand too close to the edge of the platform in the subway, because you never know who's going to come up behind you and push you. So when I was taking the subway, I didn't stand close to the edge, I stood right in the middle and looked around. Because this guy was serious. I mean, he's the guy who stabbed Ricky Dozan and led to his death, the famous wrestler. You know, in, right. In the men's room of the new Latin Quarter. So when you first found out that there was price on your head or somebody was threatening you, did you think, well, I got to go to the police or I'm going to flee the country. Uh, I got to get a gun somewhere to protect myself in case, you know, when you think back, was there like panic? Uh, 
It was scary, but I had work to do here. I had deadlines to meet. I had people to interview. You know, the normal life of a journalist. You can't just hop on a plane and leave the country because you have all these commitments. And yeah. So you just go on with your life, but you just think about it more. I mean, it wasn't just me. It was the editor of uh, Kadokawa whose life was threatened. So when they said be careful about standing too close to the train platform, they right. were referring not only to you, but to everybody that was in the publishing supply chain. Well, Murata was the, he was the guy who had come up with the Sumiyoshi in the 50s and 60s, and he was in the Latin Quarter the night that Ricky Dozan was there. He was 24, and Ricky Dozan was 39 at the time. And the Ricky Dozan was very close to this ethnic Korean gang, the Tose Kai, run by a guy called Ginzamachi. They had just signed, you know, for several years, the Sumiyoshi had a deal with the Professional Wrestling Association run by Ricky Dozan, you know, to supply PR materials and Oshibori and drinks and etc. Stuff that, you know, concession stands at the professional wrestling matches around the country. And they canceled that agreement and they signed up with the Inagawa Kai and uh, Yamaguchi Gumi of Kobe. These two gangs were mortal enemies of the Sumiyoshi, which was the largest criminal gang in Tokyo. And uh, so it was a big insult when that happened to them. Sure. And many people think that, you know, Murata was just, uh, he was a 24-year-old guy. He was basically a hitman or an enforcer. And people think that he went to the club that night to exact revenge on Ricky Dozan. He says that wasn't the case. He said that he was just going to the men's room and Ricky Dozan was standing in the entrance to to the men's room talking to some hostess, and he tried to squeeze by, and they kind of bumped each other. Ricky said, excuse me, and then he looked at Murata, and he saw the Sumiyoshi badge on his lapel, and he said, oh, you, huh? And then one thing led to another, and words were exchanged, and and Ricky Dozan attacked him, jumped on top of him. So Murata had a knife in his belt, and so he was lying flat on the ground. Ricky was on top of him, punching him, so he pulled out his knife and stuck it in Ricky. Then he went to the hospital. It wasn't, there wasn't a lot of blood or anything. It was just a, looked like a small flesh wound. But there were complications. After they stitched him up, a couple of days later, they had to do another operation. And they brought in doctors from St. Luke's to the Sano Hotel, which the Sano Hospital, which is where Ricky was. And they gave him too much anesthetic, and he died of a heart attack. Okay. You know, he wasn't in the best of health. You know, after a match, he would take several fifths of whiskey. I mean, he had an enormous capacity to drink alcohol. And then he would take these sleeping pills to go to sleep, and he'd wake up, and then for practice and the match, he took uppers, you know, methamphetamine to come back to life. When you're on that kind of diet, you're very quick to anger, you know. Yeah. Most Yakuza are like that, you know. So anyway, he, yep. so he died. And the Murata went on to be, he went served seven years in prison and he got out and he became a big deal in the Sumiyoshi. He had his own gumi of, of 12 or 15 people. He was doing gambling and drugs and other things. He had married this nightclub hostess who was much, much younger, in her late 20s. She ran a nightclub in Rapungi and one of the, the hostesses had borrowed money from her and didn't pay it back. They went over to this hostess's house and they took her television set or stereo and anything else that was worth money and left. And she reported them to the police. And so he was arrested along with the girl. There was a, a photo in the Yukon Fuji. 
this mugshot was in published in the paper and I said I'd like to use this so I published it in Tokyo Underworld in the English edition which came out in 1999 and the Japanese edition came out a year after that and he saw that he went to Karakawa and he said you know you use this photo without my permission the editor came down to talk to him he said I want two million yen he said you my daughter is embarking on a professional wrestling career <laughs> this could harm her chances for success. Any exposure is good exposure, they so say. So the editor said, you can't, you know, what you're doing is illegal. There are new laws that are passed against it. And so he said, okay, I want you to know that I'm not going to forget this. And on your way home, don't stand too close to the edge of the platform on the subway because you never know who's going to push you. And they told me about this, and I started to think, wow. you know. And uh, I'd also gotten a letter at the same time from... Machihisa Yuki, who hired the Ginza Machi, the boss of the Tosekai. Oh, wow. The enemy, mortal enemies of Sumiyoshi, who was very upset with what I wrote in Tokyo Underworld about, you know, I had his police record. It cost me 30,000 yen to buy it from this guy at Bungei Shunju who handled such things. You know, I had this information and I knew what the Tosekai had done and what he had done. So it was all, everything I wrote was accurate. And so he sent me a letter in very in English and Japanese, and English was written in this you know old Victorian style English, and it said, "Greetings, Mr. Whiting. Uh, the cherry blossoms are here, and the seasons are changing, and we hope this finds you in good health." And our president is very concerned about some of the things you wrote, and he would like you to come over to our office and discuss them. And I showed it to the editor at Kadokawa, and his face turned. And he said, we hope this finds you in good health means you're not going to be in good health very much longer. Oh, no. (laughs) In Yakuza speak. And so I was going to go see him. I said if I could go there with the lawyer from Kadokawa and a photographer, this American guy, Greg Davis, who took pictures for time. Because I was fairly confident. I said in my reply, is there anything wrong with what I reported? Because it was all true. He just said, well, we'll talk about that when we meet. And so we scheduled a time to meet, but his wife got sick and went in the hospital and she died. And he got sick and he died not too long after that, which is very strange. But one thing led to another and his lawyer said what he was concerned about. We hear there's going to be a movie made of Tokyo Underworld and he said he, he wants to be portrayed as, you know, not just a gangster, but as a patriot who helped defend Japan and the United States against communism, which he did. He had a letter from MacArthur, from General Douglas MacArthur, which said, thank you for fighting communism. You're a true patriot. You helped save the country. And Americans are eternally grateful. So whenever he'd go to Hawaii on on vacation, he'd be stopped by the immigration authorities because he's on a Yakuza list. You know, you weren't supposed to be let into the country. But he would pull out this letter and he says, you stop these other guys, you know, but I'm a patriot. I helped save Americans. You know, you owe me a debt. And they would let him in. I mentioned that in the book, but I spent more time on the crimes he committed. So he wanted to be portrayed in a more of a positive light than you gave him in the book. The lawyer said he was worried about how he would be portrayed in the movie. So these two things happened around the same time. So the Murata thing at Karokawa and the edge of the subway platform, and we hope this finds you in good health from Zamachi. So it was a little worrying at the time. They say a chill runs down your spine. That's exactly what happened. 
So speaking of Tokyo Underworld and the series or the film, it's been dragging on for quite a long time. Forever. Once it eventually comes out, do you think there might be some new threats coming your way? I don't know. It's you know the book came out in 1999, so and, and 2000 in Japan. 20 years is a long time. You know things have changed. So. Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe, you know, some gangster's relative might not like it. I don't know. Murata's dead. You know? And they keep reprinting the book. It sold 300,000 copies in Japan. It was wow. number one at one time. And it did quite well in the States. sold 50,000. And there's been five different movie companies that you know, picked up options on it over the years. So, no, I'm not too worried. Turning to your book, Rule Number One of Writing... The author should be able to express the thesis of his book in one sentence. Right. Quote, unquote. What is your one sentence for Tokyo Junkie? It's a double biography of the city of Tokyo and Robert Whiting. How the city of Tokyo grew and how their growth affected me. And it's very cyclical. Starts with one Olympics, kind of ends with the other one. Right. Tokyo Junkie, 60 years of bright lights and back alleys and baseball. I read in a recent interview, you said, I've come to the conclusion that a memoir is the hardest form of nonfiction writing there is. It was a painful process. What do you mean by that? When you're writing a memoir, you're essentially interviewing yourself, and you don't know whether you're asking the right questions or getting the right answers. And the tendency when you write a memoir is to make yourself look good. I mean, that's your natural inclination. So you tend to avoid, you know, the subjects and incidents in which you don't look good. So I tried to be very careful about that. And it's also very hard to put things in context, to keep perspective and to to figure out, you know, what's important, what's interesting to the reader. Sure. Because you, you really don't know. It might be interesting to me, but not to you. And so I wasn't sure, so I just gave them the finished draft and I said here you just cut what you think is not interesting were you okay with some of the things that they cut they didn't cut anything they published Published it in the United States you know they said uh, 100,000 words that's the maximum anything more you know it's it's too hard to sell and I just went over it's not exactly war and peace yeah draft after draft after draft cutting it down tightening it cutting it down some more tightening it it's a gradual process. You know, some people, some authors might say, well, let's just cut out this section, but I don't like to do things that way. I would just like to tighten everything, make, keep mm. as much as possible and just make it as tight as humanly possible so there are no wasted words. And that's what happened. But never again. <laughs> okay. It's too hard. So you said it was a painful process. How do you feel now that it's out? Well, I've seen these are the best reviews I've ever gotten. You know, I thought up until this one that you got to have Wow is the best reviewed book. You right. know, it was nominated for prizes and everything. But this one, they haven't had a bad review. Kirkus uh, reviewed it and they starred. That means it's nominated for one of the best nonfiction books. Wow, congratulations. But, wow. I mean, there's a couple hundred other books, you know. So we'll find out in the fall. And the Times of London, their literary supplement, they gave it a really good review, which is un- very unusual. Uh, well, this book is split into seven main chapters. 
each chapter's title describing your station of life right. here in Japan, starting with the soldier, then goes through the student, the degenerate, the penitent, the professional, the reckoning, and last, or currently, right. the rojin. As you wrote this book and you recalled these periods of your life, which one stood out? Even you yourself thought, wow, that's amazing. Uh, the degenerate. <laughs> because I, you know, I really was a degenerate time. I was hanging out with these Yakuza every night, Kabuki show every night, you know. And then I would go back to my apartment in Higashino Nakano in front of the station and go to this little snack bar across the street for a nightcap. Bokido? Yeah, Bokido. And they had baseball betting pools and run by this gangster. And so I made a bet. I lost 30,000. Yeah. Really stupid. You know, I was usually only lost a couple thousand yen if I lost every night and win the same. I didn't have the money, so I went home, and this guy showed up at midnight at my door. Jiro. Jiro, the gangster, right. The, the Yakuza enforcer. Leather jacket, scars on his face. And he said, better have the money tomorrow. So I got the 30,000 yen, and I took it to him the next night, and he says, sit down, I'll buy you a beer. And he says, you know, I'm from Okinawa, and Japanese don't like Okinawans, and you're American, and Japanese don't like Americans, so let's be friends. <laughs> and he, he took, me, took me to this nightclub in Koenji, the most beautiful women. I mean, they look like movie actresses on a Toho calendar. This girl sits down next to me, and he says, you like her? Yeah, she's a doll. He says, you want to screw her? <laughs> Take her in the back. Like, well, I will, you know, hold on, you know, intimidating uh, moment. Uh, so, you know, we went on. Was it a suggestion or was it a I said, demand? No, he said she won't mind. She works for us. She'll do what we tell her. And I said, well, I'd like to get to know her first, you know. Then he got called away on something. So he shows up the next morning at 8 o'clock with these two ghosts on his arms. And we've come to say hello. Anyway, he took he introduced me to his boss, Jiro, the gangster, introduced me to his boss, and I told his boss that I had graduated from Sofia and wrote about the LDP. He said, oh, that's great. We support the LDP. He said, we get out to vote for them, and, you know, we you know, make sure people donate to the LDP campaign, and in return we get construction contracts. And so I was in. It turned out later that they wanted me to get guns for them from the base, which I <laughs> gracefully exited that. Well, I really like that section of the book where you do talk about the Bokido because it reminded me a lot of my early days yeah. in Japan as well. At the Bokido, when you were 27 years old, you met the character named Jiro. Right. He was the Yakuza enforcer. And you developed a kind of friendship, if that's an yeah. appropriate word to use. Yeah, I kind of liked him. And you gained an access to a world that many Japanese don't know, let alone foreigners. Right. And you wrote there was a new adventure every night. Can you expound a little bit on any of these, quote-unquote, adventures that you had during this degenerate era? Well, he took me one night, he said, you, do you like soaplands? Maybe they called them Turkish bath back then. He took me to this place where... We walked in, and it was a huge winding staircase with red carpets, and it was like something out of Gone with the Wind. And, and people, you know, were bowing at the staff. The proprietor was, uh, couldn't have been more obsequious. 
And it was clear they were just terrified of this guy. And so beautiful women come walking down the stairway. Which one do you want? And uh, that kind of thing. And you were in your late 20s at this period. Yeah, I was a bachelor. I was in my late 20s. I mean, it was a a great experience. They wanted me to... uh, they were opening up a nightclub in Kabukicho, and they had these hostesses. They were importing hostesses from Manila and Bangkok. And nobody in the gang could speak English, and these girls couldn't speak Japanese, so they said, would you be the manager? Said, well, a nightclub pay. manager. Yeah, and they said, we'll match your salary at Britannica, which is already really good. And all you have to do is just make sure they behave themselves. And, and uh, I was going to do it for a while, see what it was like, sure. know, just to have the experience. But then this guy got, he got mad at a, a taxi driver one night who wouldn't stop. Right. At that time, you know, around midnight, the train stopped running, and it was very hard to get a cab. You had to hold up like four fingers to I'll pay four times the, the meter to get home. And we were coming out of this club in Koenji, and this cab came by at five miles an hour and the guy wouldn't stop because we weren't holding up four fingers so Jito kicked the side of the cab put a big dent in it by the gas tank the cab driver got out in the Shikono Yaro and Jito jumped on top of it and he was almost killed the guy I mean just you know left and right and elbows and blood gushing I had to pull him off I said we're gonna kill this guy we're gonna wind up in jail let's get out of here so we go back, we go back to the Bokido, and he's sitting there, and he, he says, I'm sorry, I lost my temper, I shouldn't have done that. He pulled out a knife, a switchblade, and he just slashed the side of his cheek, not deeply or anything, but enough to draw some blood, and he says, Oriwa ningen kuzu, I'm human trash. You know, so I calmed him down. I, I kind of like the guy, but... Most of these guys, they just can't control their tempers because they're on drugs all the time. You know, right. it's uppers and downers. And and most of these guys could not get a job in a you know, normal Japanese society. That's why they wind up in the gang. So, but, you know, my sympathy for him was tempered by the fact that he was insane. <laughs> I'm thinking maybe that could be me on the ground next time. And so I just said, I can't do this Shinjuku job. I said, I work for a Japanese company. We have a lot of overtime. You know what that's like, and I can't. Right. So he seemed to understand that. And then after that, they asked me to to write notes to these hostesses and say things like, don't drink too much or don't sleep with the customers or, or please sleep with the customers. That was a smart move in hindsight, obviously, not taking yeah, that job. Right. But if we could just speculate for a minute here. Right. Let's say that you did take that job. Right. How do you think your life might have turned out differently if you took the nightclub manager job for the Yakuza? I don't know. It could have been an interesting experience. It also could have turned into a, this, a nightmare experience. I, I don't know. Because when you're dealing with guys from organized crime, they're just like walking time bombs. You just don't know when they're going to explode. Well, you quote Yasuharu Honda, the author of right. Kizu, right. who said there is no such thing as a good Yakuza. Do you still believe that today? I think there's good in everybody. I mean, it's there if you give them a chance and the conditions are right and everything. But yeah, I basically agree with these people. 
They scare the hell out of people for a living. That's their job. That's how these crime groups make money. And there's a lot of crazy people. Like this one construction worker one night says, I want to show you this Yakuza friendship ritual. And he grabs a wooden chopsticks and he bites off the end and he stabs himself in the chest. He wasn't entirely sober, as you may <laughs> Probably not. Guess. And he says, here, now it's your turn. I said, no, thank you. I got to go. My, you, know, my. you see, in my culture, we thumb wrestle. Yeah, right. Yeah. What do you think ever happened to Jito? He either wound up in prison or somebody killed him. <laughs> or he drank himself to death. Or, you know, I'm sure it didn't have a happy ending. He just disappeared one night. He came by my house at midnight one time. He'd already been to, to jail for about six months and came back, and his finger, he had to slice off the tip of his finger, you know, when he screwed up and as a way of apology to the boss. You know, you Do you know what off. he did? No, I don't know exactly what it was. He didn't tell me. And he came by one night and he says, at midnight, and he says, I've got to, I have to leave. Some people are after me. He said, Do you have any money? And, you know, all this time, you know, he'd taken me out to all these bars and nightclubs and, and whatever, and I, you know, nobody ever paid the bill when they were there, right? And I just happened to have 30,000 yen sitting on the dining room table. He was standing in the doorway, he could see it, so I said, here, this is all I have. And he took the 30,000 and he left, and I never saw him again. Wow. I went back to the States. I left Japan and went to the States. I moved to New York a short time after that. That was the penitent era of your book. Yes. I got my act together. I stopped drinking. Well, you know, he would come by. I lived on the second floor of an apartment. And, you know, they stopped coming up to the door. they just stand down on the street and yell, Bobu, Bobu, difficult. Yeah. It'd be 2 o'clock in the morning and I'd get up, you know, be half asleep. I'd get up and go out with them. And that, that was insane. And I just, if I'd continued on that path, it would not have had a happy ending. And besides that, I just had to get out. I was tired of being a foreigner. I'd come to Japan when I was very young. I was 19. I was 29 at the time. And I wanted to see, you know, what I was made of. I wanted to live in my own country for a while. I decided to move to New York. And to see if I had what it took to succeed in that society, you know. And there's no place in the world that can make you feel less important than New York City. <laughs> there's, there's a song about that, you know. Yeah. But I got a book, I wrote a book in New York, Chrysanthemum the Bat, and I got it published, and that changed everything. Doors started opening up. Time Life asked me to go back to work for them in Tokyo. So it was a smart thing to do because I wasn't a gaijin living on my gaijin privilege anymore. I went from that identity to another identity, published author from New York, and it just made a world of difference. Phones started ringing when the translation came out, and I became a, a, a writer, a freelance writer. It started yeah. with a bet, and that's how you got started writing the very first time. Yeah, I didn't, I'd never written a book. And right. I would tell people would ask me what Japan was like, and I'd tell them about the LDP and the salaryman, the labor unions, and they just eyes would glaze over. For sure. When I started telling in these baseball stories, so, you know, in the beginning, the baseball was the only thing I could understand on television because half the words were in English, you know, strike, home run, bodu. Yeah. Same with golf. 
Yeah. And there were two Americans on each team. And so that's how I got to learn Japanese, or reading the sports papers the same way you did. I'd say, well, in Japan, they have this batter named Sadaharu O, who takes batting practice in the evening with a sword, practices a swing, slicing uh, strips of paper suspended from the ceiling. Or they practice all year. They start in January after New Year's with voluntary training, you know. Voluntary with air quotes. Right. They have a drill that everybody has to go through in spring camp, which is eight hours a day, where you feel ground balls until you drop from exhaustion. Everybody had to do that once in camp. That's a, a, it wasn't a fielding drill. It wasn't a conditioning drill. It was a drill to develop your fighting spirit. Because the idea was you reach your limits and surpass them, and it makes you better somehow. It makes, gives you more confidence. So what Japan had done when baseball and other Western sports were introduced in the late 19th century has grafted the principles of the martial arts onto them. The whole idea of dedication, endless training, uh, self-sacrifice, obedience, and development of spirit. Americans played baseball in uh, spring and summer. and It was uh, fun. It was an enjoyment, a way to blow off steam. In Japan, it was a tool of education, and you had to practice all year, from New Year's all, all the way through to the end of the year. Is this what you meant by Japanese approach to baseball is a metaphor for its society as a whole? Yeah, this whole idea of dedication, obedience, self-sacrifice, spirit, you see it in the schools. They have this expression, you know, study until your eyes bleed. There are no janitors in in Japanese high schools and junior high schools because the students do all the cleaning. Or in corporations, the same thing. When I worked for Britannica, it was a Japanese organization, an American name, but it was Japanese run. The contract said 9 to 5 every day, Monday to Friday, but nobody went home at 5 o'clock. Yeah. Similar, I worked for a Japanese company, and they didn't have any janitors or cleaning ladies there. There was a rotation of all the employees that Uh, would sweep and clean and even clean the bathrooms. Wow. Yeah. I thought I was hired to do sales and marketing and better the company, not clean bathrooms character development. I'm sure you're a better person because of it. We all know getting a great sleep is important, and this is what Goo Goo is all about. Super comfortable mattresses at very affordable prices and delivered to your home for free. They back up their best sleep ever promise with a 100-night money-back guarantee. Learn more at gugu.jp and enter the coupon code ZEN for your 20% discount. Goo Goo. Better sleep better you. Japanese speakers know that zo means elephant in Japanese, and elephants are strong, intelligent creatures where the leaders nurture their young. Zo Digital Japan is an SEO and digital marketing agency based in Tokyo. Contact them to help your business grow traffic by four times, seven times, and even ten times in one year with services such as SEO, content marketing, pay-per-click advertising, and more. Head to the website zodigital.jp and look for the elephant logo. You've seen such massive changes in Tokyo over your decades. What do you expect Tokyo to look like in another 10 or 20 years? 
I know that right now, Tokyo is the greatest city in the world. And that's not my opinion. That's something that's proven by the metrics. It has the highest GDP. It has the largest population. It has more Fortune 500 global headquarters than any other city in the world. It has more Michelin-starred restaurants than any other city in the world. It has twice as many three-star restaurant, Michelin three-star restaurants as Paris does cleanest, most efficient, most extensive subway and train system in the world. It's the safest city in the world. It has the highest life expectancy. It has the highest literacy rate. It has the best healthcare system. Last year in November, Global Finance ranked Tokyo as the most livable city in the world. A year before, TripAdvisor ranked Tokyo as the number one uh, destination for tourists in the world. It's true. Friendliness, hospitality, efficiency. Let's flip it then. You've experienced Tokyo for 60 years. What's something that you miss about the good old days? Well, I think the the old neighborhood feel is disappearing from Tokyo. You know, it used to be, when I was living in uh, Kawamoto Building, the delivery boy would come around, they'd just open the door and walk in the game. (laughs) You see my sin? And, uh, you know, that's just the way it was done. You know, now you have all these high-rise apartments, and you don't have... You used to know everybody in the neighborhood, but now you barely know your next-door neighbor, you know. So that that neighborhood feel is gone. That's too bad. I like these, you know, hole-in-the-wall bars and under-the-track soba stands. Did you hang out in Golden Guy very much? I've been there, you know, every now and then, but that's the thing that I like about Tokyo. Yeah. But that's slowly disappearing. It's too bad. On the very last page of your book, Bob, you mention there are many more subjects which lure you on to explore. What are some of these subjects which fans of Bob Whiting can look forward to? Well, I just finished writing a book. I'm editing it now called Tokyo Outsiders, and it's a sequel to Tokyo Underworld. Uh, It was stuff that started out as a book that material that I couldn't fit into Tokyo Underworld. Interesting stuff, you know, about the uh, mafia gambler who introduced casino gambling to Japan. The guy who ran, who ran Danny's Inn, it was this high-class brothel with young ladies from all over the world in the 60s. An American guy who became a, a member, a Yakuza member of the Yamaguchi Gumi in Roppongi. Was this the guy that you wrote about in yeah. Tokyo Junkie? Yeah. The one that Wanted to know your wife's relatives' addresses before he would talk to you? That's the guy. So I had had seven chapters that I wrote in 2002. He was part of it. I knew him then. It was published in Japanese. It was a bestseller. I was going to do it in English, and I was waiting because I knew there was a movie coming out, and I was going to wait until the movie came out, which would boost sales, and I would send it to the publisher. Great marketing strategy. But it kept being delayed. It went from DreamWorks to Warner Brothers to HBO to Amazon and now Legendary Global. So after I finished Tokyo Junkie, I decided, screw it, I'm going to finish this book. So I added some new stuff about Carlos Ghosn and Woodford, the Olympus guy. Cool. And this Korean taxi baron I know who took over the taxi market in Kyoto and Tokyo, who invented the Uber system. A really rough guy, likes to fight, been arrested many times. Interesting story. And Bobby Valentine's story is in there. The Lucy Blackman story. Oh, uh, wow. 
So I'm just putting it together now, and I'm going to get it out there whether there's a movie made or not. The Lucy? Lucy? Lacey. Lucy Back- Blackman, yeah. right. Did you unearth any new information that wasn't made available or public at the time? No. I wrote it from the angle of a sea change in visa allotments in Japan after the bubble. And so it became very easy for any adventurous foreign woman with blonde hair to come to Japan and make money easily. You know, you just sit there and pour drinks for somebody in some bar and they thought, well, that's all we have to do. You've received numerous accolades and awards. Your work has been featured in world-famous publications. Presidents have endorsed your books. What's the one professional achievement which you're the most proud of? Uh, you don't like questions like that, do you? Well, Macmillan submitted You Gotta Have Walk for the Pulitzer Prize. It was one of 102 books that were candidates. It's a, not an easy thing. It's very difficult to submit a book for a Pulitzer. You know, the Times of London reviewed this book and gave it a glowing review. Their literary supplement, that's like the best literary publication in the world, it's as high as you can get. And the fact that they did it was really... Uh, gratifying. Did you frame it? Uh, I just, I copied it and put it in my file. I don't know what to do with it yet. (laughs) You're so humble. I did get a letter from George W. Bush. He sent me a handwritten letter. Really? What did he say? He said, Dear Bob, I read Tokyo Junkie and I'd just like to say thanks for the shout out. I really enjoyed the book, you know. And he said, I I wondered why you didn't write anything about Bobby Valentine, you know, because I used to I was with the Texas Rangers. He was the, the manager until I fired him. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he said, keep up the good work. It's handwritten. Nice. Made a couple of mistakes. He crossed them out. It's quite amazing. I'm stationary, George W. Bush. That I hope you framed. I've got it. I, I'm, I don't know what to do with it. I copied it and sent it, put it on my Facebook page. That was fun because... I did a tour for a meaning of Ichido. I did 22 cities in 51 days that was back in 2003, I think. And one of the cities I've, I visited was Jackson, Mississippi. And at this speech I gave, only one person showed up with a TV, and there was a TV crew there. So I gave the speech, and the guy who organized the event said, I'm sorry, I thought there would be a lot of people coming. And so he said, I want you to sign a copy of The Meaning of Ichido for George Bush, who was president of the United States at the time. He said, I'll get it to him. And so I did. And then uh, a few weeks later, I got a letter in the mail from the White House, signed George W. Bush. And it said, dear Mr. Whiting, both Laura and I really enjoyed The Meaning of Ichido. We want to thank you for sending it. You know, just the thought of him and uh, his wife sitting in the West Wing reading the meaning of each of them made me laugh. But I, I don't know, but it was just a nice gesture. And then I wrote about that experience in Tokyo Junkie. Yes, you did. And somebody sent him a copy of Tokyo Junkie, and he read about it himself, so he sent me this letter. And he actually used the word shout-out? Yeah. Thanks for the shout-out. <laughs> okay. He's getting hip. Hip in his old, old age. Yeah. Wow. What are you curious about these days? Well, I told you I've been working on this book, Tokyo Outsiders. That's occupied most of my attention. I've been asked by Disney Japan to do something related to Tokyo Junkie. 
that uh, wouldn't seem like a natural combination, Tokyo Junkie and Disney. Well, it's not it's not my story that they're interested in, but they're interested in the background, the development of Tokyo. I key, see. And they want me to write it, so that's one thing I've started working on. There's a couple of things. One's a documentary on the history of, of Tokyo from the end of occupation to the present. The other one's a drama that involves the, a similar time span. As a journalist, yeah. do you have any interviewing tips or suggestions to get the best out of your subjects for some up-and-coming podcaster? Well, you have to research everything you possibly can about the person you're interviewing. You have to know his life better than he knows it. Uh, the worst thing you can... That's right, I see five or six pages there, of single space comments and questions, so you've done your homework. That's the most important thing you can do because some interviewers, they just think they can wing it. And uh, you do that, you'll, it'll turn into a disaster. You know, if Bob Whiting wants to interview Martin Scorsese, which I did, actually met him, he was going to do Tokyo Underworld, uh, you have to know everything there is to know so that you don't say something really stupid. Like, you know, everybody knows that, you know. Like, uh, you know, what was your first movie, Mr. Scorsese? Yeah, or, or yeah. hey, Bob, did you ever think about writing a book about baseball? Yeah, right, something <laughs> like that. So preparation, that's the most important thing. Tokyo Junkie, 60 years of bright lights and back alleys and baseball. It's an awesome memoir. In fact, it's a lot like us long-term residents. We don't even need to write a book now because you wrote it for us. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for sitting down with me today. I really enjoyed hearing your stories, and it's been a real honor to meet you. Thank you very much. Thank well, you very thank much. you. It's an honor to do this. Thank you very much. And that, folks, was Bob Whiting. This was part one of two. As you heard, our main focus was his book, his early years, Yakuza backstories, basically two of the three subjects in the Tokyo Junkie subtitle, Bright Lights and Back Alleys. The third subject, baseball, you can hear in part two, coming out in a week or so. If you have not yet read Tokyo Junkie, definitely pick it up. It's a great read, highly recommended. You can get it at Amazon. You can also learn more about Bob Whiting at robertwhiting.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and give Now and Zen a positive rating or even a comment or feel free to share it on social media far and wide. You can also hear more Now and Zen podcast episodes at nowandzen.jp. Thanks again, everybody. Have a great day and talk to you next time.